on today's episode. Conceptual flair detached from granular cultural understanding can take organisations, political institutions, to a certain extent societies in the wrong direction. Those are the circumstances in which demographic diversity, I think, is really important. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gould. Today, I am delighted to have with me Matthew Side. Matthew is an author and highly acclaimed speaker in the field of high performance. He has written six best-selling books on the subject of mindset and high performance and has worked with many leading organizations. His book titles include Rebel Ideas, Black Box Thinking, Bounce, The Greatest, and his celebrated children's books, You Are Awesome and Dare to Be You. He is also a multi-award winning journalist for The Times and The Sunday Times in the UK and presenter of the popular BBC Radio 4 programme Sideways, to which I subscribe. He is a regular contributor to television and radio and his previous career was the England table tennis number one for almost a decade and competed at two Olympic Games. That's pretty cool. He is co-founder of Matthew Side Consulting and I am delighted he's here. There's lots to talk about. Matthew, welcome to the show. Well, Hugo, thanks ever so much for having me. I'm I'm already in your debt. Uh, firstly, you describing the sport that I used to play as table tennis. I occasionally get introduced as a former ping pong player, which really starts it off on the wrong tone because ping pong, I think to a lot of people, it sounds like a jumped up parlor game, roughly equivalent to tiddlywinks. Whereas, of course, Hugo, I'm conscious that you're fully aware that table tennis is a globally competitive sport and it takes tremendous resilience and dedication to reach the top. I'm probably protesting too much. The other thing I should say to listeners is Hugo very kindly in our chat in preparation for this podcast mentioned that uh, his two or two of his children, or maybe his two children, uh, had read one of my children's books. So I, I already feel that the chemistry here, Hugo, is good. And I'm much looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me. Not at all. I feel it too. I mean, it's not every day you get to meet a legend of the pinnacle of sports of, of table tennis. That, that is mentally and physically probably the most demanding game yet invented by man. So it is. It really is an honor to have you blessing our airway. So I'm going to start with how I think I see you. And that gets me into the areas I want to discuss with you. So I think you're a fox, not a hedgehog. I think you're multidisciplinary. I think you connect dots. I think you're looking for patterns. That's your mental model. And so I think it makes sense to touch on what I perceive to be maybe five areas that I think your work, your canon can be grouped into, how to think, cultural observations, what it takes to be a high performer, sports and failure, and then investing lessons in decision-making investing that you think can be garnered and, and, and drawn from a huge body of work you produce. So does that sound okay as a sort of setup to you and as a sort of way of telling everyone here's what's coming? I love that. On the one proviso that if you hear an answer that you think you want to push back on or, or take us into new avenues, unforeseen avenues, then I'm willing to go there too. Brilliant. Well, let's get going. So number one, how to think. I think that you spent a lot of time thinking around how do we as a society think and how that might be wrong. Perhaps you could frame that as groupthink versus cognitive diversity. Perhaps you could go back further and say, are we even taught how to think properly? It's an interesting way that you've uh, chosen to characterize that distinction between groupthink and cognitive diversity. I, I do feel that diversity as an attribute of groups and networks and societies, if I can put it this way, is quite misunderstood 
and also mission critical to how we come up with great innovation, wise strategies, accurate empirical predictions. In fact, diversity, I think, shapes wisdom in almost any area of complexity. And I think this, if I may say so, Hugo, I think this is fundamentally under-optimized in the world today. And you mentioned my most recent book for adults, Rebel Ideas. It's really trying to give an insight into how getting diversity right has tremendous and often counterintuitive power. And it certainly contrasts very vividly with the problem I think we have in many parts of the world today, corporate, institutional, political, which is different varieties of, of groupthink. So, so most people would say, OK, I hear you on groupthink and I know groupthink's bad, but why is it so persistent why it's, it's, it's easy to say of course i want cognitive diversity and then walk into the next meeting and be guilty of group thing how do we break that is it a d design thing does it go back earlier do you actually have to really break things up for me hugo i i think the key thing is to properly define and then specify the circumstances in which cognitive diversity works. So what first, perhaps it might be worth trying to explain what I mean by this. We often think, is it fair to say, Hugo, of diversity in demographic terms, differences in race and gender and social class. Cognitive diversity is a different way of thinking of diversity, differences in insight, perspective, information, but also very importantly, the mental models or heuristics that we deploy consciously or otherwise to filter information to reason through problems. That's perhaps worth saying that there's often an intimate link between these two conceptions of diversity, demographic and cognitive, because our demographic backgrounds shape to a large extent the experiences we have in our lives and therefore the way we think about certain things. So if I could use a slightly simplistic example, Hugo, if you, if you imagine hypothetically putting together an advertising team to come up with a creative campaign to connect with a broad group of consumers. If everybody in the creative team comes from exactly the same demographic background, they're going to find it difficult to connect that campaign with those consumers whose lives are very different from their own. They're going to lack the tacit knowledge. If, you know, for example, they're all white, middle-aged, male, middle-class, private school, educated Ivy League graduates. Nothing wrong with that background, but if 100% are from that background, you're going to be too narrow. I mean, one thing I find sometimes highlights into this intuition is a, is a story from British politics in the 1990s, where Tony Blair, then the prime minister, gave a speech where he was coming up with a proposal to crack down on antisocial behavior. And he said, what we need to do is give the police the power to target people involved in antisocial behavior, march them to a cash point, get them to withdraw £100, and issue an on-the-spot £100 fine. And Hugo, all the upper-middle-class journalists who heard this policy thought it was a masterstroke. It took somebody from a different social class to see the weakness in this policy, which is, of course, that many of the people so targeted wouldn't have bank accounts and a very small proportion would have a £100 bank balance. In other words, conceptual flair detached from granular cultural understanding can take organisations, political institutions, to a certain extent societies in the wrong direction. Those are the circumstances in which demographic diversity, I think, is really important to coming up with good judgments. But there are circumstances, I think, where it's worth saying that the link between demographic differences and cognitive differences are less significant. Is this too long an answer, Hugo? That's a good answer. That's a good answer. 
I've got, I've got five might... questions coming from it, but keep well, going. I was just worried you might be glazing over. But let, let me. So there are circumstances which the link is. If you imagine designing an aircraft engine, this is a, a complex, multi-dimensional problem. You definitely need cognitive diversity. You know, people with backgrounds perhaps in materials science and aerodynamics. But they don't map so obviously onto demographic differences. You know, the fact that I happen to be mixed race, I'm uh, half Pakistani and half Welsh. This, by the way, Hugo, is an unusual combination. If anyone shares that amongst your listenership, do do let me know on Twitter. I've never had an audience who come from that. So I had a very distinctive set of experiences growing up in suburban Reading with that background, which has been very helpful for journalism. But I don't think it's given me any germane insights into how tweaking the design of the engine might change its aerodynamic properties. There isn't a read across between those demographic experiences and the problem we're trying to solve. It will have longer term consequences. Somebody from my background thriving as an engineer sends a signal to the next generation that they can do the same. It's a, a contributor to social mobility and meritocracy. But I think it's rigorous also to say it's not helping with the short term engineering problem. And the reason, Hugo, maybe I'm overemphasizing this or, or laboring the point, but I think it is a profound strategic mistake to reduce diversity to a box-ticking exercise based only on demography. I think where you really break out of groupthink is when you optimize for true cognitive diversity, and that requires a real analysis and an insight about how to do it and to do it well. I've got two immediate questions coming off of that. One is a way of resolving too much of the same thing. It can be via hiring. If you're thinking about a company, can you hire different? But how would you test for true cognitive diversity in a hiring process? That's question number one. Question two is, which organizations around the world have you come across where you thought maybe they've cracked this? Maybe they are very good at achieving the right kind of diversity in that it is genuinely productive in a sustainable way? It's a great question, Hugo, and it gives me a chance to tell a brief story, which hopefully will unite your listeners. I know many are from the United States, many from the UK, and of course, around the world. But given that football, or should I say soccer? No, let's say football. Let's say football. I happen to sit on a committee uh, that advises the England men's football coach. Now, Hugo, I hope you know who this is as a Brit. Of course I do. Gareth Southgate. Gareth Southgate. So this is famously wears a waistcoat, although he hasn't really been wearing one that often in Qatar. But I sit too on the hot. group that's too hot. It's too, too exactly advising him on performance. But it's quite an eclectic team. Because in addition to me, with my interest in culture and psychology, there's also somebody called Lucy Giles, who runs the Sandhurst Military Training Academy, very good on logistics and performance psychology under pressure. Somebody called David Brailsford who's not a football coach, he's a cycling coach. One of the best cycling coaches in the world, very good on recovery, cardiovascular endurance, uh, selection, performance camps, and so on. Manoj Badali, who's an expert in AI, very good at tactical pattern recognition and other things of that kind. Sue Campbell, who's an Olympic sport expert. Michael Barber, an educationalist. David Sheepshanks, and a few others. Now, Hugo, I want to invite you, first of all, to ponder how football... English football insiders thought about this advisory group when the composition of it leaked. You can kind of imagine, right? They're horrified. How dare these outsiders come in and tell us how to play football? You know, why is Southgate not advised, like all previous England men's football managers, by good old-fashioned English football men? You know, where's Harry Redknapp in this setup for crying out loud? By the way, Harry Redknapp, for those unaware, is an English-based football coach. You know, he knows more about football than Matthew Side, which is true. You know, Tony Pulis, another 
English-based football coach has probably forgotten more about football than Lucy Giles and Manoj Badali will ever know. And that's true. If you surrounded Southgate by Redknapp and Pulis and other English-based football managers, you'd have a lot of domain knowledge. But the problem, it would be the same knowledge replicated five, six, seven times. That's not an innovative team. It's an echo chamber. They're agreeing all the time. You know, it's comfortable, it's clubbable, but they're not going to come up with innovations on the pitch. What, what's fascinated me, Hugo, about this group is when somebody shares an idea not known by the others in the group. So Brailsford has been brilliant, the cycling coach, on talking about, for example, how big data sets help you to tailor the diet for the specific metabolism and gut microbiome of an athlete, improving recovery, improving endurance. You know, that is divergent thinking. That's a cross-pollination of ideas. And this is where you get a big uplift in the collective intelligence of groups. So to answer your question directly, can you see that some kind of an analysis has gone into the array of voices, the array of lenses, the array of perspectives that might impinge usefully on the question of football performance? But if me and a cycling coach and an army person and had, we're advi- and a, you know, somebody with an Olympic sport background were advising not on football, but on how to design a hadron collider, you'd have lots of diverse perspectives that were completely irrelevant. So in order to get the different dimensions of diversity right requires an analysis. And to put it slightly technically, you want it to map onto the dimensionality of the problem you're trying to solve. Some organizations explicitly have a cognitive diversity strategy. I believe they're going to win in the marketplace that we're in today, one of complexity and rapid change. Those that don't have a cognitive diversity strategy and do this kind of through gut intuition and not in a rigorous fashion, I just think they're going to lose because they're going to be missing out on what it really takes to solve difficult, complex problems and come up with new ideas. But organizations that have a cognitive diversity design, an intelligent design, do you, I mean, you might not know the answer to this, but do you know how that happened? Was it the result of a very strong and secure leader who said, actually, I'm I'm strong enough in my position to change things, or was it a result of adversity, so a big failure? So I'm thinking you could maybe say, here are some real-world examples, such as the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We're told that quite a few intelligence agencies said, said this will never happen, this isn't going to happen. And and so there are quite a few things, and I think you, know, you can read, there are well, well-written books around the histories of whether it's MI6 in the UK, whether it's CIA, with what seem to be collective failures as a group thing, where the stakes are pretty high. So is it for an organization to embrace intelligent design around cognitive diversity, is it often in reaction to mistakes, screw-ups, existential threats? Is it strong leadership or is it a coming together of something in between? I think it does certainly empirically happen after big failures. So you mentioned intelligence agencies, certainly in the case of the CIA. I argue in in actually in Rebel Ideas that you can trace the profound strategic misjudgments of the post-war period to an analytical intake that were dominated by West Coast, male, middle-class, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, liberal arts graduates. There was a slight bias in recruitment where the recruiters hired people who effectively looked and sounded like them. And of course, people from that background have a huge amount to contribute to a diverse team. But when you have 90% plus from that background and you're trying to anticipate emerging threats in different kinds of society with different patterns of religious radicalization and alienation 
you're just not going to be able to distinguish signal from noise effectively. You're not going to have the right array of perspectives. And I think the CIA have acknowledged this. I think British post-war foreign policy has suffered from some of the same biases. But what you really want, I think, is buy-in from a critical mass of people in an organization that this is actually critically important for us. And when people start thinking in that way, they start to kind of organically exploit the past. So maybe perhaps an exa- another example, if you look at science, which I'm sure, Hugo, you and I would agree, and listeners will agree, is a successful institution. A hundred years ago, successful science as measured by the number of citations that attach to the hit papers, which is not a completely inadequate proxy, used to be written by individual scientists digging deeper into a given subject specialism, like economics or biochemistry or ethnography or whatever. That's not what great science looks like today. Great science today is not individual scientists working within their given subject silo, but multidisciplinary teams because the the problems they're solving are complex and interconnected. So a great scientist today, you know, because the the world doesn't always obey the categories we impose upon it. So the great scientists, yes, they have deep subject specialist knowledge, but they have the curiosity to look into the wider constellation of ideas. With whom can I usefully collaborate to solve these interconnected problems? Funnily enough, I was at Oxford University a couple of weeks ago, sat next to the professor of molecular biology. And he was talking, uh, this may be too much information, but he was, I said, what are you working on at the moment? And he said, well, I'm working on fungi, species of fungi, these mushroom type species. And it turns out, Hugo, believe it or not, I didn't know this, that the certain species of fungi have small tails. And when they're in fluid, they can detect light and swim towards Mm. the light source. And so insights into these fungi provide some useful information about biological evolution. But I knew the answer before I asked the following question, you know, who are you working with? And he said, well, it's funny you should say that. In order to get a really great team together, I've had to reach out beyond molecular biology. I had to go outside my comfort zone. I had to connect with people in computational mathematics, people in fluid dynamics. In other words, those academics who stay rigorously within their own silo they effectively get stuck in an echo chamber and they're not producing great science. I think the same is true of, for example, professional services firms. For the really big value-added problems they're solving, they need the different lines of service to come together to provide a strategic overview that unlocks the value creation. And this, I think, is is an example that you see across the piece in technology and beyond. I didn't know that about fungi either, I must confess. So I I bet you wish you'd never heard that. I will repeat that story probably so many times that I I then actually believe it was me that was there having the conversation, not you. I want to take a, a bit of a turn off and go from sort of culture, which I, I, I think cognitive diversity grouping are clearly parts of culture, and maybe take culture a bit broader, make it more relevant to sort of younger generations. I'm interested, because you've written quite a lot about this, how you think younger generations think now, and then move that on to free speech and inevitably social media. Because I think a lot of what you just talked about was really applying to maybe middle-aged people in institutions, in positions of authority, the ability to do something around groupthink, encourage cognitive diversity and design it. But let's talk about younger folks, how they think, how's that different? Why is that? One thing that I became very interested in about five or six years ago 
I was invited to a school uh, to give a talk at the opening. It was a state school, uh, you know, not a particularly well-to-do school in the north of England. And they were opening a new wing of the school. And they had the local member of parliament there and the mayor. And they had this this other person, Matthew Side, a former ping pong player. And all the parents were there to watch this opening ceremony. And one of the students, one of the young uh, girls at the school, did a performance. And, you know, like when you have a baton and you wave it around and throw it up and catch it. It was a kind of gymnastics performance. And I'll never forget, Hugo, the room became tense with anxiety. What if this young person drops the baton? What if they throw it into the air and it clatters to the ground? And actually, about two-thirds of the way through, the baton did fall. And a sense of complete mortification dropped around the room. And I ripped up the speech I was intending to give. And I gave a talk on the absolute imperative importance of failing. That when we take a risk and we fail, we often learn. And that life isn't about always being perfect, but about having the resilience to face up to the setbacks and challenges that are an absolute necessity if we're going to reach our full potential. And I started reading the research around this, and there is a phenomenon called the curse of perfectionism. I think the social media, to a certain extent, has exacerbated it, where people curate their lives to look wonderful on the internet. They airbrush photos and their lives look rather marvelous. And I think young people can engage with this and think that life is about acting and looking perfect. But if you want to look perfect, you never take risks. You never try anything new. You never have the courage to get up on stage and be somebody who's willing to wield the baton or be a character in a school play. And yet, as we know from technology, from science, failure is central to the learning process. And I'm not saying that all young people lack resilience All I'm really saying is that I think it's a good idea as parents and as teachers to equip young people with that wonderful crusading sense that taking risks and being willing to occasionally fail is a wonderfully empowering thing. And do you view society as having gone the other way, that actually risk is seen as something bad and to be avoided, and actually you should look to governments to to take away risk, to protect. And somehow that has created a risk-averse mindset. And as you say, resilience builds from failure, from taking risks, from understanding what worked, what didn't work. And so are we creating a generation that is fragile through no falls of their own? Yeah, I think it's a valid question and it's a healthy debate amongst psychologists. I mean, what what, what I perhaps say is, If you think of the greatest institutions, I mentioned science already, but one of the things that science does well is perform experiments. But have a think about an experiment, because if you know the result of an experiment before you conduct it, it isn't an experiment. The performance of an experiment is an act of a certain type of humility. You're trying to discover new knowledge. You're willing to put your theory on the line. The great philosopher of science, Sir Karl Popper, said that falsification is central to science. And the reason is because, again, a quote from Popper, human knowledge is finite. The implication is that human ignorance is infinite. It's a willingness to step into the infinity of the unknown, to push back the frontiers of knowledge. And those organizations that have low tolerance for risk never innovate. 
And in a certain types of market, they will be filtered out of the marketplace because they're not managing to do new things and take advantage of new technologies. Having said that, Hugo, I, I perhaps make one conceptual point. I do think it's sometimes a bit worrying to people when they hear people like me say failure is a good thing. You know, if I'm flying tomorrow from London to, where are you, Boston or Chicago, Hugo? Chicago right now, yeah. So if I fly over for dinner, which would, would be a wonderful thing to do, although probably too many emissions to justify it, I wouldn't want the pilot to say, right, I'm going to try pulling a different lever today. And okay, we failed. It's, it's okay. We, we've crashed the plane. I, I don't want the pilot to try something new and potentially fail and crash the plane. What you really want the pilot to do is try new things in a simulator, a high-fidelity simulator, so they learn while minimizing the cost of failure. And I think what the really savvy institutions do today, you know, they don't bet the whole company on changing the retail configuration. They'll test it in the pilot scheme. But rather than doing the pilot scheme in the most conducive circumstances with the best customers in order to prove the hypothesis, they'll do it in a challenging environment so they properly learn from it before scaling. And I think getting the balance strategically between minimizing the cost of learning while maximizing the benefits, I think that is where society should be at. And it varies from place to place. Now, certain companies need to be at a different point in that calibration. In the innovation and tech space, they'll be in a different place from professional services. And I think you know, perhaps the younger people need to be in a different place to older people. I think the takeaway is that failure is nevertheless a necessary component of really virtuous growth. I mentioned social media earlier. I'm not asking you to sort of opine on whether it's good or bad. I'm very interested whether you think it's changed our way of thinking. And that obviously, who's are, that could be anyone, any age. But I imagine it's probably going to have the exposure and formative years, it's going to have a greater, potentially greater impact. So do you think social media, and whether that's just shorthand for fast flowing, but perhaps more superficial information is, is leading to a change in the way that minds work and how we think? Because we started off with saying, how do we think? Are we taught how to think properly? And you said, actually, there are repeat sort of errors on how to think, whether it's an institution. So I'm just wondering, putting social media into that, is that changing how we think, whether that is a good or bad thing, do you think that is a fair observation? Well, I, I perhaps say too, I mean, one thing I do, going back to the diversity and group thing, there is a, a tendency, sometimes overstated, for people to surround themselves with the ideologically like-minded. So they're effectively hearing opinions with which they already agree, which can be wonderfully comforting. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if your particular group has a monopoly of good ideas. It's slightly problematic if you're shielding yourselves effectively from other ideas from which you might learn, which is why this curious mindset, what I sometimes call the growth mindset, is such an important asset where we're willing to reach out to different kinds of idea. But on the wider point, I do sometimes worry that young people are kind of living through a gigantic social experiment, the kind of which we simply don't know the results yet. And I do worry a little bit about what we will think about the social media and children who have grown up with no reality other than the one to, with which they're confronted today, which is most of their friends on WhatsApp and Insta and Twitter and these other TikTok. And with the metaverse potentially coming, 
I think this is a, a, I mean, what I hope, I suppose, like you, Hugo, is that we'll learn to use these tools to our own advantage. At the moment, I think we're being slightly manipulated by them. We're induced to stay on these platforms longer than what is good for us because that enables them to sell us to advertisers and harvest our data. But I do think that we'll, we'll re- I hope we reach a, a better and more benign accommodation, if I can put it that way, with the social media. We talked quite a lot here about how to think. Now I want to talk about how to perform. So sports, high performance, failure. What stops people from reaching their full potential? Is it external? Is it internal? Well, perhaps a story here, Hugo. I I, I love stories. Everyone loves stories. There's me. I'm trying to think back 20 years, and I'm trying to transition out of being a ping pong player. You know, that's been my life. I've been trying to move up the world rankings, and I start to slow down, and I have to reinvent. And I wrote a book called Bounce. I didn't expect anyone to read it, frankly, but a few people did. An unintended side effect was being invited to give a talk at Goldman Sachs. It wasn't far from where I lived and still live in, in southwest London, just up the district line to Fleet Street. And But I went to a, a state school, and we did, Hugo, no public speaking. You know, there was no debating society. And believe it or not, the press conferences for table tennis were not that well attended. So hard to believe. Hard to believe. <laughs> I know you're you're dumbfounded by this revelation. Yes. So I had done very little public speaking. So I hadn't had, if you like, the practice to do it. So I, I turned up suffering desperately from imposter syndrome and wondering why on earth I was in front of this room. I was I was nervous, and I didn't do terribly well. I got heckled a couple of times, and on the tube on the way home, I thought, you know what? If I'm invited to give a another talk by by a company or anyone else for that matter, I'll politely decline. Think about that, Hugo, for one second. One negative experience. Yeah. I drew the conclusion I didn't have the innate talent, the innate facility to read a room and that natural charisma and social confidence and effectively severed all possibility of future learning. This is called sometimes a fixed mindset. And it's tremendously damaging because it imposes very powerful self-limiting beliefs. But a couple of days later, I thought, no, hang on, you can potentially improve at public speaking. So I, I googled public speaking practice. And the first hit was an organization called Toastmasters, uh, which is just a global network of public speaking clubs. And the nearest one to where I live was just over the bridge in East Twickenham, and they met every second Wednesday. You go along, you give a talk, you get feedback from other people in the room, and when they're giving you feedback, they're in front of the room, so they're speaking too, and you have to do some spontaneous speaking as well. And I went every second week for about five years, partly because they're a wonderful group, by the way. And I'm not saying, Hugo, that I'm now the best speaker in the world. I, if, if you ever hear me, I'm, I'm certainly not. But what amazed me was how much we can improve when we have that can-do attitude. And we're liberated from these self-limiting beliefs. So my sense of performance is it's an iterative process based on – and just to reiterate the point, it doesn't mean you're going to win a Fields Medal or a Nobel Prize. It means you reach the summit of your potential if you're willing to have a go, fail – learn, get some decent feedback. And I think we often, if I can put it this way, underestimate our own potential for growth when we're put in the right circumstances. And is that, as you head up elite sports, and as discussed, you are a participant in extremely elite sport. Is that still true when you're thinking about professional sports people, that they still don't maybe fully appreciate how much they can grow? 
that, that imposter syndrome is, is just as rife there as elsewhere? Or was it a different set of problems? I think at elite level of sport, most performers have a really profound sense of their own scope for improvement because they've got there through incredible hard work. It's not to say talent doesn't matter. It's that you really, to be the best of the best, you need to have the synthesis of both talent and a great and empowering work ethic and a willingness to fail and fail well. I think most top performers do have something of of this kind, but they don't necessarily apply it to all aspects of their life. I remember uh, going to a football academy and I was really trying to encourage the young footballers at Arsenal that after they finish their football career, it's worth having some other asset to fall back on. You know, why not continue your education, uh, do an apprenticeship? There's plenty of hours in the day to train at football and to do something else. In fact, it'd be a great release and escape. And a few of them said, oh, I can't do that because I don't have an academic brain. In other words, yes, I can improve at football. I can improve my left foot, my right foot, heading the ball, volleying, and they're out there training like anything. But they weren't willing to uh, use the same approach to something else. And I think that can sometimes be a something that holds people back. Do you think, so one of the things that I spend quite a lot of time thinking about when it comes to sports is beyond Moneyball. So there's pre-Moneyball. So you reference some sort of characters in the football world and the soccer world who you would describe as, as old school. This is pre-data, it's gut feel, it's a network of knowing people. And there's a little bit, I think, of, sort of an entry barriers created by you've got to be in this network and you've got to be, you've got to be inside the sport but you don't necessarily you have to be a participant, but not necessarily a an analyst of, of sport. That's now changed. The Moneyball Revolution, incomes data. So there's all of a sudden a lot of things that were recorded in someone's brain and now systematically recorded and turned into data and data enables analysis. There's analysis. And so you get a step change. But is it sort of zero sum? Because everyone does it. So what comes after Moneyball? Have we squeezed the data analytics lemon dry and then it's going to fall back to human attributes for the very best sportsman? Or is it actually you can still have situations which I think happen across many sports, which is a team does better than perhaps it should. A, a smaller team does very well because they have employed analytics more intelligently or maybe they've got an edge in data how do you think about, as you think about what drives great sporting performance, how much is enabled by better analytics, better data, better training as a result, or how much is just you can't, it doesn't matter what era Federer exists in, he's going to be the best. Oh, Federer, what a player. You like writing about Federer in, in, in lavishly loving terms. I do love Federer, but you know what? I've got to say, Hugo, I love also... Nadal, who, who I know, and, and Djokovic, who I've got to know well as well as a, as a sports writer. I think, I mean, it's interesting that, Hugo, what, what that rivalry evokes for me is the power of competition. The extraordinary, we, we've talked about self-improvement, but one of the things that drives improvement is competition. We must never forget that. That's why free markets are wonderful things. It's not just about incentives. It's about you get exposed by better performance in the market and you have to raise your game and you get filtered out. I remember talking to Federer. He was getting hammered by Nadal because Nadal, for the tennis enthusiasts, has a very looping forehand that kicks very heavily up off the surface, particularly on clay, and it kept hitting the top leading edge of, racket, of Federer's racket on his backhand side. So Federer 
had to reshape his backhand, which he did to win the Australian Open. But Federer was exposed by Nadal, but then Djokovic exposed Nadal with his backhand to Nadal's forehand. So we have this wonderful competitive dynamic where they're pushing each other to ever greater heights. And it's been quite marvellous to behold. So I think, yes, a player like Federer is going to be a beautiful performer in any era. And I do think that there's still probably more scope to use data effectively, particularly in games like uh, football, where data is relatively new and I don't think has reached the zenith of what it can bring to the game. But often these methods are deployed at the end of the pipeline. In other words, we use data to hire the best players. Where I think uh, science is going to take us ever further in sport is improving the pipeline itself. So football is quite meritocratic, low entry costs. Uh, Almost anyone can play the game. And so it tends to recruit from all around the world. Whereas a sport like Formula One is still very limited in the extent to which it brings people from different parts of the world who may have the talent for the game. Only a few people have ever driven a Formula One car or any of its precursors. Uh, The same in rowing and and sailing and possibly also in, in table tennis and badminton. Tennis is reasonably global, but also coaching methods. Let me talk a little bit about cricket, Hugo, because I know you're a big fan of, of cricket, he says, because most, most English people are. But when, when I was playing cricket at school, there was a particular philosophy of a straight bat, the eye above off stump when you take guard. And for those who are not interested in cricket, effectively a very rigorous and didactic set of requirements about how you should play the game. Not completely silly ideas, but nevertheless very integrated, particularly into the culture of cricket in England. Then you look at someone like Steve Smith. This is a fantastic batsman, by the way, who learned, like Donald Bradman, another great historic batsman, to play organically. Not too much coaching. Learning through trial and error. Shaping the game around his own idiosyncrasies. I think we need a bit more latitude for people, young people, as they develop their techniques. I think it's been, if I can generalize a little, a bit too didactic. And I think we're going to find new methods to accelerate the learning process through the pipeline, particularly on things like perceptual awareness. I think that's where the the big gains are to be had in the coming couple of decades. I think you're on record of saying that when you went to the Olympics, you you choked. And you're smiling, but you should... I don't think that's actually something, I mean, it's, a, it's brave of you to say that, but I don't think it's something to sort of smile about because my question is, pressure is something that happens to everyone. And some people say they thrive on pressure. I kind of wonder, I wonder whether initially everyone finds pressure pretty daunting and intimidating. Is that how one responds to pressure? Should that be a lesson you learn for yourself and gain confidence, which is back to resilience? Or is it actually coachable? Can can we help people handle pressure? And obviously, it's at the sharp end. It happens in sports. That's where it's most observable. But it kind of happens to everyone all the time. And this is going to get me onto the sort of final area I wanted to talk to you about, which is investing, where you that is definitely pressure every day. Well, it's the Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000 mm-hmm. where I choked rather graphically, Hugo. Thanks for bringing that up. But the uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, I don't mind talking about it because I, I did learn quite a lot from the experience. Like, you know, obviously the Olympics for a yearly cycle, and I was in with an outside chance of a medal. And I remember a Swedish-born coach. He he came to me, Hugo, just before I went out into the the megawatt light uh, of the arena in in Sydney to play Peter Franz of of Germany in my first match. He said, Matthew, 
the next 40 minutes will determine whether the last four years were a waste of time or not. He was trying to inspire me. He was trying to really ratchet up the motivation, but it had completely the opposite effect because I became suddenly terrified. In table tennis, there are very fine margins, and I felt a slight tremor in my playing hand. And that, I can tell you, is completely catastrophic because if your playing hand is shaking ever so slightly, it means you're not going to be precise. And I lost the first game 21-2. This is almost unheard of in international competition. I was effectively knocked out within about 15 minutes. And I could see the kind of the sympathy on Peter's face as he, as he shook my hand at the end of the match. I mean, it was a 50-50 match. And I was on the plane home. And I think this is a phenomenon, Hugo, that we have to take seriously under pressure we sometimes trigger the fight-flight-freeze response. And that can be catastrophic for for rational uh, decision-making when the stakes are very high. And so what we need are a series of strategies to help us deal with it. Can it be coached? Yes, for sure. But the most, for me anyway, and I think the evidence shows this too, the most valuable thing of all is if there's something you really care about, you know, a particular skill you really want to be able to demonstrate in a public space, and you feel the pressure, that means you want to do well. So that's not too bad. That's not a bad thing. But put yourself in that environment. And through time, you'll begin to develop strategies to deal with the emotions, to deal with the the rising heart rate. I mean, Hugo, we, we were probably both a little anxious when we started this podcast. But when you go on, you you learn different ways of doing it. It varies from person to person. The thing that I do, Hugo, if I'm very nervous before a big speech or a big broadcast, is instead of thinking if this goes wrong, it's all going to be awful. You know, I might lose my job, and I might if I can't work, then I'm going to lose my house, and you know, then my my wife's going to leave me. You're often thinking of the absolute worst case scenario mm-hmm. as you're about to perform. Instead of that, I think, well, hang on a second. Win or lose, perform well or perform badly, my mum will still love me. Now, my mum thinks this is a slightly dubious claim, but. <laughs> You can see, you can see, Hugo, that when you have that ground level truth, that come what may, I'm still going. And frankly, my wife will still love me too, and and my children. It's something that you can build from psychologically, so that when you get into the crucible of the performance itself, you've actually got positive rather than negative thoughts coursing through your mind. That works for me. But I do know, having interviewed many top performers, that they have different techniques and different tools to get themselves in the right frame of mind. And these are built, Hugo, by actually going out there and giving it a go and occasionally messing up as I did in Sydney. Let's talk about investing. So I'm very interested in your insights from your body of work, the things you've studied, the things you've learned, and and you've met investors as well. If you tomorrow had to become an investor, what would you take from what you've learned so far? What do you kind of think are things you can bring from your investigations into culture and and how to think and how to make decisions and how to perform, how to deal with failure? What what do you think, knowing, I don't know how much you know about the actual art and science of investing, but those lessons, what would you bring? I think if I had to say two things, and there's some good evidence behind this. The first is learning from mistakes. So if you make a particular prediction, it turns out not to be a good one. To update one's assumptions or model in the light of that new information. If a particular stock has gone down in value, be willing to cut the losses. If a stock has gone up in value, be willing to run the winner. What tends to happen is that people uh, hold their losing stocks 
twice as long as their winning stocks. Because if there's a losing stock, they don't want to crystallize a loss. So they hold it, hoping that it will rebound. And when there's a winning stock, they crystallize early so that they can show that it was unequivocal evidence to, that it was a good idea to buy this stock. So I think that's a bias, sometimes called the disposition effect, that is worth confronting. The other thing is getting different uh, points of view when it comes to an investment decision. I mean, there is some very robust evidence from somebody called Philip Tetlock, who's a psychologist in the United States who wrote a book called Super Forecasting, that diverse teams of investors – uh, tend to do better. And this is because of something called the wisdom of the crowd effect. And effectively, what that says is that if you have a diverse group of people who have information in their model, but that these models are diverse, when you aggregate the information, the errors tend to cancel in the aggregate because some are higher than the eventual oil price, some are lower, or the eventual outcome of GDP or the eventual outcome of the stock performance. So you're pooling the information and filtering the error. Um, so this is quite a rigorous uh, finding, and that would be the other Hugo. That would be the other thing I'd throw into the mix when it comes to investing. Do you think it's better to be an outsider versus an insider to be a good investor? That's a very difficult question to answer. I, I suppose it would depend whether the insider had access to knowledge that the outsider lacked that was relevant to the determination of price or i, I don't, I don't mean insider the, in the sense of someone who works in in a company or outside of something. what no. i mean is someone who maybe you talked a bit about your background and how, and how perhaps you felt maybe it's something of an outsider because in some ways you were a bit different i think that's a sort of fair summary so people who've been on the outside at some point in their life in some way where are they used to thinking differently and or draw confidence from feeling uncomfortable. I don't think there's such a thing as an outsider mindset versus insider, but someone who's been more on the fringes of, of a group versus right at the core of a group. Well, there's, that's a great, there's very good evidence that groups tend to perform better when there is a contrarian who's willing to speak up and disrupt the consensus. I would certainly throw that into the mix. But what you really want is lots of people with deep subject knowledge that is different from one another, but all of which is relevant to the problem you're trying to solve. So you want a mix, if you like, of insiders and outsiders to get that wonderful synthesis so that you disrupt the groupthink, you can cross-pollinate ideas and hopefully kind of triangulate a, across the best decision of all. One of my favorite quotes, which I have used several times on this podcast, comes from Charlie Munger, who is one of my investing heroes, and he said, show me the incentives, I'll show you the behavior. Are the incentives for a lot of people in investment management companies and other professional services firms, are the incentives oftentimes too skewed towards conformity? It's a great question. I mean, I, I, I love the quote, by the way, I've got to say, but, but it doesn't quite capture. Do you remember I said a bit earlier that professional stock pickers were holding their losing stocks twice as long as their winning stocks. So this effect isn't explained by incentives because the incentives have to be, as it were, filtered through the behavior. And sometimes I think there are systematic biases that undermine our capacity to actually reach the incentives that we are set. So definitely the incentives can sometimes be not particularly conducive to you know, the, the right kind of behavior. But even with perfect incentives, I think there can still be systematic biases, which is why, to go back to your earlier point, sometimes the outsider-insider group dynamic is so helpful. Which almost gets us back to where we started, I think, around 
you know, the role of cognitive diversity. So the, the thing I'm taking away, which I already believe, but it's nice to hear someone else say it, is that I think in investing in any organization that is making decisions, which is what investing is, but again, most organizations are making decisions. Now, oftentimes they're concerned with other things. You, you raised the, the very good point about sort of safety and aviation, but cognitive diversity that's well well designed, intelligently designed is a must have. It's not a nice to have. It's an absolutely mission critical variable. And I, yeah. I really think that the organizations that are going to thrive and shape this post-pandemic age are going to be camped out in that terrain. And I know we're reaching the end of you. I just wanted to say, you, I think if I could give you some feedback, because you, you said to yes. me, we need feedback on things. I think you've done an absolutely terrific job. It's been a joy to talk. And Hugo, I hope, I hope we'll stay in touch. This has been great. So thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to host you. And we covered a lot of ground, but that's the whole point of you, I think, which is to cover a lot of ground. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at williamblairim. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.